0: All right, may man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 432. I'll have everyone know that since episode one, we've been carefully planning so that a musical episode would be 432, and I'm just lying. Anyhow, Jason Lingren is with me, and Mark Devlin is with me. Mark Devlin brings with him his book called Musical Truth, Volume 3. Uh, those that may remember, Mark Devlin flew out from across the pond to be at the airing of Shoot the Moon in NYC. Uh, and he brought his books with him there. And I think a lot of them move. They're very interesting. They're very well-written. Welcome, Jason.
1: And good morning.
0: All right. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Crow. Jason, good to be with you again. All right. Do you still have an active account to log in at Crow777 Radio, Mark? Yes, I do. Okay. If you don't at any time, email Rose. And please, when this goes live, jump in and put the links down so people can find your stuff, your website, you, and your books. Sure. Perfect. So I think we've narrowed down that we wanted to jump in on a particular part of the book that you wrote. I think I got three books from you, if I'm not mistaken, when we were in NYC. Uh, I've had time to read through two of them. Of course, I've always got five books going on any given day. Where do you want to jump in here, Mark?
2: Okay, so I put out Volume 3 in my Musical Truth series a few months ago, and this concludes the trilogy. I don't really want to be writing Musical Truth books for the rest of my life. And the danger was that if I didn't cap it on this trilogy, then I'd be getting up to Musical Truth 72 or however many years I've got left in this physical realm. That's a horrifying thought, actually, being around the previous musical <laughs> 72. Um, I do love the synchro mysticism of this being show 432, as in 432 hertz being the harmonic frequency. Uh, so that's a, a nice touch there. But with Volume 3, a large part of the book talks about the COVID agenda of the past two and a half years that we've all lived through. And I'm sure your listeners are as heartily sick of that whole narrative as I am. I've spoken about it every single day of my life for the past two and a half, getting on for three years. Um, I did feel it was important in this book to lay some of that information out there because I wanted this book to serve as a sort of wake up a normie guide. And I think it's a book that listeners, readers can give to friends and family members who might not yet have twigged that we've been living through the biggest psyop ever perpetrated on humanity these past two and a half years. And I like to think that in the chapters of this book that address this, I've included everything that somebody might need to be able to convince them that that is indeed what this whole thing has been. And if you can get to the end of this book and still believe that the government is telling you the truth about everything, and there's this scary V word that's been around, and that everyone has to take an arm spear as the only way out of this situation, then I honestly don't know what more I could tell you. So a large part of the book does stray away from musical territory because I just felt the responsibility, the duty to lay all that information out there. I knew that I had an audience, I had a readership, and I thought I could be of service in putting this information out to people who might not otherwise have access to it. So that job's been done. Then elsewhere in the book, I've got these big sections called sound bites, and these sort of punctuate the main chapters. These are focusing on the music industry, and it goes into all these different subject areas that I've covered in the previous two books, just to help reinforce the points. So I'm talking about lifetime actors, culture creation, social engineering agendas, and the way that A-list musicians are used to push these things, and uh, mind control, narratives that get pushed, the mind control of the artists themselves, evidence for this the military family backgrounds of so many of these musicians, which we've covered in previous shows, where do they actually come from? Uh, Is it left to random chance or accident as to which groups and which music makers become the most prominent and the most influential? And my contention is, of course, that it's not. They are all chosen for this role. And then you get to the very end of the book, once past all of that, And this, for me, is the most interesting chapter because I always end my books on what I consider to be positive, uplifting, inspiring notes. Obviously, a lot of the information is very heavy and dense, and it can be a bit doom-laden. And I don't want to conclude on that note because it's distressing, it's unsettling to have to come to the realisation that your favourite cultural heroes aren't who you thought they were a very difficult thing to deal with. It tends to destroy your nostalgic memories and attachment to these individuals. And, you know, there's empowerment in doing that, of course, because then you can move forward and you can reassess what's important to you in life and uh, your value systems. But I really wanted to end each book on a very positive inspirational note. And so what I'm discussing in this one is great spiritual truths that I feel have been encoded into many rock records through the decades. We can question why that is and why this information is there, albeit in very cryptic coded form, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but I think we can draw some positivity from the fact that some of this uh, very uplifting, uh, illuminating information has been staring us right in the face all this time. It's the same kind of truths that we get encoded into Hollywood movies and TV shows and every kind of popular culture vehicle, actually, but it's right there in music. So I'll uh, pause here and see if you want to jump in, but that in a nutshell is what the final chapter of this book is all
0: about. All right. Well, for the record, we're recording this on July 29th of 2022, and I am starting to see masks coming back around. Uh, Episodes like this are so important because there's no damn law. There is no damn law. There is nothing that compels us to do this. And yet my dentist is trying to tell me I've got to wear a mask. I've got friends in London telling me it's starting to pick up there. I've got friends all over the United States starting. They're, they're seeing the hint of the mask. This would change overnight if people said, no, thank you. It's that simple, really. But Mark, I'll, I'll ask the simple question. Um, what does it mean to live in the UK or America? What is culture in these places? And that's a rhetorical question. I will submit to you that where I grew up in this country, what culture is, is we watch some movies and we like some TV shows and unfortunately watch the news. Historically, culture was a thing where the previous generation handed forth important things to the following generation. Our, our generations, our modern generations break from this tradition. Now we watch TV And those are the examples that we follow. And I'm sure I'm queuing up Mark when I say it was never missed that when radio came online, when TV came online, when media and movies got so big, they knew what they had the whole time. It's called mass communication. And they hijacked what culture would be simply by showing bad examples. But let's jump in, Mark. I mean, do you want me to grab a band at random or do you want to go in surgical here?
2: Well, we could pick any band that's been successful over the course of the past 60 years and show evidence that they were completely manipulated into their level of success and influence. and fame. Let's do it.
1: I'll do it. Who do you think is the earliest one that really demonstrates this example?
2: I always start in the mid-1950s with Bill Haley and the Comets, or Bill Haley and his Comets. I was corrected on this on a previous show. This seems to be a Mandela effect, just to use that term, where I always remember that group as Bill Haley and the Comets. But everywhere you look now, you'll find out it's and his Comets. Uh, do you have any memories of, of that kind? Of course. Um,
0: of course. Isn't, isn't he the author of uh, Happy Days? Isn't that theme song from Bill Haley? I might be wrong. I'm not sure
2: that's him, but... Uh, One,
0: two, three o'clock. I'll look it up while you're talking.
2: Work around the clock, right. So for me, this was the beginnings of the rock and roll era. And this replaced everything that had gone before in terms of the post-war music and entertainment that was around. This was the birth of the teenager. It was the birth of youth culture in a sort of recognizable form that we now all know. It was shaken off these rather traditional staid sort of grey austere ways of living which had been there in the post-war years in both Britain and America I guess and making everything suddenly colourful and vibrant and exciting so that group was used to usher in the rock and roll era the following year we had the emergence of Elvis Presley we've got the movie doing the rounds at the moment the Baz Luhrmann film uh, sort of Elvis uh, biopic And it's just kind of reinforcing where he came from and what he was all about. Of course, he was an artist that was used to popularise black music styles, rhythm and blues and jazz and uh, these different fusions, and make them acceptable to a mainstream white audience, hence why he was a white artist. It's very far from the only time we've seen that through music history, of course, it's been done with so many different genres. But you also had some black artists around at the time, you know, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and artists of this ilk, and they were all pushing this new style of music, rock and roll. And it was all kinds of cultural changes that were happening. You had some influential movies around that time, The Blackboard Jungle. There was the James Dean trilogy, uh, Rebel Without Cause, and uh, the others that followed. And there was the movie version of Rock Around the Clock as well. So anyone that was around in those times must have wondered what the hell was going on, because life was suddenly very different to what had gone before. And I can look back on that whole era now, with the benefit of having done research of this nature, and see that this was social engineering, societal conditioning, uh, one of so many examples. So, you know, I've highlighted Bill Haley and his comments there. Uh, There's lots to say about Elvis Presley and we can take it forward you know in any number of directions in the 60s you obviously had a number of influential groups the beatles the rolling stones being the obvious ones who were presented as rivals but there were anything but what you had going on there was a dialectic because both these groups were controlled by the same forces so it didn't really matter which one you gravitated towards the agenda was getting pushed and the mind control was getting done either way and unfortunately this is the case with every major act over the past several decades, whether it's Pink Floyd, whether it's David Bowie, whether it's Led Zeppelin, whether it's Queen, uh, you know, going into the 80s, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Human
0: League, Gary Newman, any kind of act you might want to name. But Mark, this band I love must be exempt from what you're saying.
2: (laughs) This is what people say, you know, people will accept that this dynamic is in place but that their band somehow slipped through the cracks. Their band remained untarnished. Right, right. And unfortunately, you are able to make a blanket statement here, as far as I'm concerned, in that if they're influential, if everyone's heard of them, if they had a career spanning several years, if they had successful uh large selling albums, they were chosen for the role and they were doing the bidding of the control system that put it there.
0: So let let me jump in. First of all, I did slightly miss the mark. The Happy Days theme song was an updated take on Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his comments. But let me jump in in a place where I'm pretty sure you'll give us some traction. Uh, In the 80s, there was a band at the time that I thought, boy, this is such an underrated band. They are so great. And that would have been Super Tramp. And I'm sure you've done way more work than I have. But when I began to look at the album Breakfast in America is when my entire view of the music that I grew up loving changed uh, from where it was recorded in the old Masonic halls to how the band came to be uh, all of it, all of it, all of it. And in my mind, super tramp is a band and hence the album breakfast in America with its album cover artwork is almost hand in glove with a movie like say back to the future, which are totally in existence to pre-echo what's to happen in 9-11 some 22 odd years later i think it's the master builder number for the album i've cited do you want to pick up on super tramp well exactly
2: the first thing i think of when i hear that group's name mentioned is their album breakfast in america uh, just due to how it stands as an absolute example of predictive programming pertaining to 9-11 as you've outlined there and it goes even further than i thought i mean the main sleeve itself gives depictions of so many aspects of that fateful day. You get the view from an aeroplane window coming in over the Manhattan skyline, made to look like a breakfast platter. And you've got the Twin Towers right there. You've got a waitress taking the place at the Statue of Liberty, holding up orange juice. Yep, her name is Libby. Okay. Uh, Orange being a Masonic number, and it relates to the number 33, I'm told. Uh, And this is at breakfast time. And when did the events of 9-11 go off in New York? Right about breakfast time. So as if that's not enough, it's also been brought to my attention that if you open up that sleeve inside the gatefold, you've got further depictions of of what happened on 9-11 in the form of an aeroplane, which is seen to fly across the top of the uh, gatefold sleeve, leaving a trail in its wake. And then you've even got a lyrics insert sleeve, which takes things further where you've got the aeroplane sort of disappearing into the Statue of Liberty. And so you can write off one or two of these things as coincidence, as people do, but when you have so many examples staring you right there in the face, it becomes undeniable. There's two guys responsible for that artwork. Uh, I forget their names right now, but i mentioned them in the book. And I would have some very serious questions uh, for them. Should I ever
0: get the chance? There's a thing we should add here, Mark. If you take the album artwork, hold it up in front of you in front of a mirror, it actually says 9-11 in the header. I forget whether it's the band's name. Just pick up the album, look at it in a mirror, and you'll see 9-11 is actually written out in reverse the way they did their font creation. That's right. And the
2: follow-up album was titled Crime of the Century. Go for it.
0: (laughs) There it is. That one. It's bad enough to get kicked in the nuts, but to get kicked in the nuts twice by the same band, Come on. While you're rolling around on the floor in agony. yeah, Right.
1: Now, there's an important uh, aspect to all of this that a lot of people probably overlook, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the 1950s or 2022, and that's the record labels. What goes out to the masses is determined by whatever record label, the uh, particular artist, band, or whatever, it, it happens to be on.
2: That's right, yeah. Record labels have a lot to answer for. You know, one thing that's really interesting for me at the moment is the resurgence of the career of Kate Bush, right? Off the back of that song, Running Up That Hill, which has been featured to major impactive effect in the Netflix TV series, Stranger Things. So it's got a very key role in that show. For anyone that has not seen it, I've watched Stranger Things and um, I don't really watch TV shows, but I got into this and it's an amazing show. Uh, There's so much programming there, obviously, but there's so much allegory and metaphor as well. It's really fascinating. The guys that created it, the Duffer brothers, clearly know a thing or two about a thing or two. But in the narrative, you've got, uh, spoiler alert for anyone that's not seen the show, but you've got these entities, basically, that are bleeding through from this alternate dimension into the 1980s, which is when the story is set. And you've got this one particular entity named Vetna. And he sort of preys on these victims that have these uh, troubled lives, these young people. And this one key character that he's going after is only saved from being dragged into this kind of hell world uh, and losing her life through putting on her headphones on her Sony Walkman, nice 80s throwback, and listening to her favourite song, which helps to calm her and ground her. And this just happens to be Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, And so the song is featured multiple times in the show, and it's being portrayed as this wonderful piece of music that literally saves lives. And it's actually resulted in a resurgence of the career of Kate Bush. So you've got a whole new generation of young people that had never heard of her before that are suddenly seeking out her old music. And I do wonder why it was her, over and above all the other artists, that were present in the 1980s, who was chosen to have her music featured. I do have an extended section on Kate Bush in the book, and I've done quite a few presentations this year where I've gone into occult aspects of her. So there's no shortage of material there. Uh, Her output is absolutely replete with occult symbolism and uh, mystery school teachings, Freemasonic stuff, sort of Egyptian symbolism, witchcraft symbolism. And I suspect that she came from a family where uh, mind control was not far from the surface, trauma-based mind control. And she does exhibit many of the traits of someone that's been through
0: that process, dissociative, multiple personalities. And the last name, Mark, the last names are going to pre-echo some presidents we're going to have. And since I've interrupted, I'll just point out, Breakfast in America wins the Grammy Awards in 1980, defeating Talking Heads and Led Zeppelin for the best, wait for it, record package. In other words, they won the Grammy Award for that album that's making fun of what will happen in 22 years at 9-11. Anyhow, sorry for the interruption. Right, right. And it only becomes apparent
2: 22 years later
0: that that was the role that album served. You know, for
2: those two decades, it was thought of as just another piece of music in Trance output. And then, it's only when vigilant researchers go in on all the symbolism surrounding 9-11 that they're like, holy crap, look at what's contained in this album. There are so many examples of 9-11 predictive programming. Uh, I've identified over 400 in movies, TV shows, cartoons like The Simpsons, advertisements, magazine covers, all this kind of thing. So you come to realise that entertainment generally, whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's TV shows, is there to push agendas, to do mind control, spells, to get into the subliminal minds of the general public. And if it's not doing that, if it's not predictive programming or similar dynamics, then it's putting out allegories and metaphors, and it's actually conveying occult, arcane, spiritual, metaphysical teachings within the narratives of these stories or these songs. And it's only now that so many of us are able to decode what's been sitting there for so many years or decades. So it's actually a fascinating time to be doing this work. We're quite privileged in terms of now being able to decipher all this stuff, because generations before us have been subject to the hypnosis and the mind control, but they've not been able to make sense of what's actually being conveyed through their conscious minds.
0: We are, I would estimate, the first generation my generation and those who came up to about 20 years after I was born, in my view, are the first generation that could so deftly take apart what's been put in front of us. And a big part of it is, is it even gets down to the kind of Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung. Like, could you connect Kate Bush's last name to the coming later of a president named Bush? Has it gotten that finite? I would suggest to you that it has. But if you're watching television, you're being programmed and I'm sorry, there's no other way around it. And particularly at this point of COVID, do you remember how quickly I I mark 311 2020 as when it blew open wide and it was officially here uh, in the United States and within, I think, three or four days, all the commercials had changed. Everyone was wearing a mask within three or four days. But I don't know, Mark, what you think, but if you, you know, so many people think, well, I'm aware this is going on now I'm immune and I'm here to tell you, you're not immune. You are not immune to mind tricks. You could take something as simple as America's funniest videos. You ever pay attention to the backgrounds in America's funniest video? They're hypnotizing you. Every background is classic Carl Jung, hypnotizing kind of 3D artwork moving. And I don't think there's any way around it, Mark. Do you? I mean, is it enough to know that it's going on to excuse yourself from the table? Or is the truth, if you're watching, you're being programmed?
2: Well, the key to not falling into the traps that they've set for you is to get all this stuff into the conscious mind where it can be understood and analyzed. And it's not having that subconscious effect on you anymore. So there's value in doing this kind of research so that you're not affected in that way. But it does, of course, destroy your enjoyment of entertainment. It certainly does for me and so many people that I speak to. You know, they can't listen to favorite bands and favorite albums in the same way again, because it's not the harmless, innocent fun that they thought it was. Same thing with movies. So many people tell me I can't watch a Hollywood movie anymore because all I can see is the programming i can't just sit back and enjoy the narrative because i know all this other stuff is going on beneath the narrative so it definitely takes something away from you and if that entertainment if that aspect of popular culture in your life is gone then i guess you have to plug that gap fill that vacuum with more higher minded pursuits i guess that's what comes at a certain uh, point in life for so many of us but the programming is everywhere and you come to realize this is the case so for Most of the 1990s, I was out there as a DJ playing primarily rap and hip hop music, and I played it on the radio as well. And at the time, I couldn't see that there was any kind of programming going on through this music that I loved and which I was helping to promote. So I was playing, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Wu Tang Clan and Biggie Smalls and Tupac and all this stuff, and you know, it was all toting guns and selling drugs and bitches and hoes and gold rims and all this. But at the time, I just thought, it's innocent fun. It's not harming anyone. But now with the benefit of hindsight and research and maturity, spiritual maturity, I can see how damaging it is for young people, younger than I was at the time, you know, teenagers, and uh, those young impressionable minds that grow up with this stuff. If that's all they're hearing, it is going to shape their view of life and society and particularly women and uh, different groups in society. An example that I gave at the weekend, I spoke at the Glastonbury Symposium uh, the weekend just gone. And uh, I was asked to select a subject which was very different from what I normally talk about. So I've done presentations on the music industry. I wanted to do something else this time. So I focused in on James Bond Jason, you and I did a show on James Bond a couple of years ago, which Mm -hmm. is actually what sparked this. But it's mind control and programming contained within James Bond stories and the real life intelligence connections of Ian Fleming. And I opened up the talk by saying that I used to be a big fan of the James Bond stories, not just the movies, but the books. I was really into Ian Fleming's original novels because when I was 12, 13 years of age, I got onto these and they're full of sex and violence. and Sadism and all this sort of stuff. And when you're that age, that really appeals to you and it's exciting. And uh, I then started watching the movies, which are actually very different to the books, but there's still programming going on. And they used to screen James Bond movies on TV here in the UK on Sunday evenings on ITV. So I would watch one of these films, go to school on Monday morning, and I would find myself acting like I was James Bond. So I would try and put down the school bullies in the same way that Bond would put down a villain. And I was trying to get the girls in the same way that James Bond would get the girls. Failed miserably on both counts, of course. But the point is, I was actually being made to act a certain way by having watched a movie. It was dictating my behaviours and the way I saw myself. I was very young at the time, but this is the point. They get these minds young. And so if that can happen to me, then it can happen to anyone else. And of course it does. And I guess I'm quite rare in that I've thrown myself into this nature of research. So I can see how vehicles like the James Bond stories are used to shape certain uh, belief systems. But most people don't. They just go on being programmed by it. And the truth about James Bond is that although he's presented as this noble moral hero character, out to save the world from dastardly villains. The truth of the matter is that James Bond is not a moral individual. He's an order follower. He takes orders from his superiors, as he deems them, higher in rank than him, so therefore thought of as superior, and he goes out and kills people, takes away their lives on their say-so without judging for himself whether this action can be justified or not. So that's not a good person. And so James Bond being presented as a hero is an inversion of the truth. And James Bond represents MI5, MI6, the British Secret Service. It could be the CIA. You know, it'd be just the same with them, with the Jason Bourne movies, for instance. And there's nothing noble or virtuous about these agencies. They're not there to keep us safe from harm. The truth of the matter is they're doing great harm they're the ones running these agendas convid all these other psyops come directly out of military intelligence and affiliated organizations so nothing good about them so whereas we're trained to think of these organizations these institutions as on our side and there to protect us uh, the opposite is actually the case so the fact that they can convince the general public that The other way round is true, is yet another testament to the power of mind control through entertainment and popular culture.
0: Well, just the idea that he's licensed to kill for crying out loud, that's a normalization of a thing that should never be normal. You can get a license to kill people. And a big part of what you're getting into goes across bond. It grows across so many things called nostalgia programming. This was where I had to face myself in the mirror. I grew up loving Zeppelin. I grew up loving lots of bands and then I hit the point where I realized what it was all about and the nostalgia kept pulling me back. How could it not? I remember hearing the song in 1976 when I was at a picnic that I loved. And so the nostalgia tries to keep you hooked in, but it is insidious to a level where at some point you have to come to the realization. When I first started talking about this, I got so many nasty emails. I had started in on rap one day, and then I said, okay, people don't appreciate this. I will go back to the music that I loved and I'll show. If I took Beethoven sheet music and compared it to the highest-minded band that I possibly could in terms of musical skill, it's night and day. So what had happened was musicality was dropping the whole time. And the first big drop came with rock and roll punk rock. We went to three chords. Then we went up a little and we kept going all the way up to rap where some rap doesn't even have a, a musical harmony or melody in it at all. Maybe it would be better described as uh, a poetry to a beat or something, but it is the lowering of the musicality. And to make the final point here, the release date on the album we were talking about super tramp is 29 March, 1979. That's the master builder number before 9-11 happens, 22 years in advance. So the other thing is 2 and 9 is 11. So it's 11 March. So not only is it echoing 9-11, it's echoing three eleven when COVID starts. And so how do we give these things a pass? And I know I went in a couple different directions, but I think the nostalgia hook alone, Mark, is as damaging as any part of this because we fondly remember these things from when we were young.
1: Now, the nostalgia thing is so powerful that I think that that is what's making the TV show Stranger Things as popular as it is.
2: Right. Well, I've reached the point now where my record collection, which I've got sitting out in the garage, I've got a few thousand vinyl records. I bought my first record when I was five, which was Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody on 7-inch. And uh, from that point on, I just bought a whole load of pop music going forward to my teenage years. And then I got into sort of black dance music. So I was buying early house music records and hip hop and soul and funk. So I've got a lot of records and they've always meant so much to me. I've proudly presided over this collection. But during the first year of Convit 2020, I hit a bit of a financial brick wall where the driving job that I've been doing up to that point dried up because I was driving people to airports and of course, nobody was traveling anymore. So that job went. And I was like, oh shit, what do I do for income now? And so, in a panicked state, the first thing I could think of was selling a whole load of my vinyl albums from the 90s. And this was primarily rap and hip hop stuff. So, I sold all these records on eBay, uh, got some pretty good prices for them, but I didn't really want to get rid of them because of the nostalgic attachment. And I was like, well, got a bit of money now, but uh, I'm going to miss those albums. So, we fast forward about two and a half years to summer 2022. And I can honestly say that none of those hunks of vinyl out there mean anything to me anymore. I could sell the whole lot tomorrow and I wouldn't really miss it because although there's nostalgic attachment, I recognize that the only reason I liked a lot of this music is because I was instructed or conditioned to like it by societal influences. And also, a lot of these records hold some very happy memories for me. And I can recall, you know, some very happy times in my life. And I don't particularly want to be reminded of those anymore because of the contrast between them and what life now is. So I'd rather just cut off all kind of nostalgic attachment that I've got to anything and not look back anymore and only look forward. Just keep focused in that one direction. So that's where I'm at. I know a lot of people might disagree and they might say, oh, I never want to get rid of my album collection. It just, you know, it's too many memories attached. And if that works for them, then it's all good. But I never thought I would reach a point where I would say that my record collection just means nothing to me. Anymore.
0: There's no other way, Mark. I don't know how eventually when you do what you called spiritually growing up, there's no other way. The problem is, is you love this thing. And one day you open up the bag and you realize that thing is a black Mamba and you give it a pass because you loved this evil thing that you have in the bag. And it reminds you of your first girlfriend and your first car and all these things, but you can't unknow what you know about it now. I had to go through a period of mourning. Well, what am I going to do now? All the music was such a big part of my life. I was in a, a punk band when I was a kid. I got pulled into that programming where all of a sudden music can be three chords. Talk about simplifying an idea to an extreme and everything about it. When you come to comprehend why it was there in the first place, why it was promoted, why it was on the radio, how the lyrics got there, just everything about it is social programming. It is seeking to create the culture and it's doing a good job of it. But at the point where you realize exactly what you realized, I don't miss those things anymore. I don't. And when I hear them now, I might listen to it, but it's not the same. I have no attachment to it. I know what it is and I am not invested in it. And what's more, I've lost respect for it. And that's where a whole new life opened up for me. When I finally had zero respect, I I hold contempt for the people who did this. They, They harmed us. They harmed us all. That's right.
2: And we're supposed to learn from these things. You know, there's lessons here, life lessons. The phrase, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, has a lot of relevance, didn't come about by accident. There's a phrase that I've used in many of my talks, which is taken from my Musical Truth Volume 2. I'd just like to read it here because it really makes the point. I wrote, when you learn about how lifetime actors and culture creation work, the question becomes, are you happy you were duped and taken into confidence by these people? And would you like more of it? Or are you rather hacked off that you were treated as such easy fodder, rife for manipulation? And now that you understand how the game is played, do you resolve to never be fooled in the same way again? There's no shame in admitting that you were bamboozled. All of us are from the earliest age. The dignity comes from acknowledging that it happened and knowing better for next time. This is actually what The Who were talking about on their song, won't get fooled again and they were a band that would know about this being a product i suspect again of british military intelligence pushing agendas but they were telling you right there in that song about how social engineering works you know uh, the parting on the left is now the parting on the right and the beards have all grown longer overnight they're just talking about how societal conditioning gets done by these agencies that make it their full-time job to do all this stuff And doesn't it just make you wonder what kind of output we might have seen musically these past five or six decades if social engineering dynamics had not been in place? If musicians had been left free to express themselves creatively, uh, without any kind of agendas in place, without being beholden to record company overlords? just free to put out whatever messages they want. And the infrastructure was in place for these messages to be freely shared and just put out there for anyone that wanted to hear it. Just imagine what sort of output we could have had. Instead of all these agendas being pushed, the empowering, uplifting messages that would have been freely put out there, it's brought home to me every time I put together an episode of my Sound of Freedom Conscious Music podcast because this is meaningful message music, truth and freedom music. And it's from artists that most people would never have heard of. And that's the point. You've not heard of them because they're too good, because they never got caught up in the corporate machinery. And they've remained free to express themselves as they'd fit. And the level of music, the quality of music out there at this level is just amazing. Uh, And if this stuff I've said many times was broadcast on the radio all over the world, It could literally change cultural attitudes and uh, society overnight. It's that powerful. And that's why you don't hear this stuff on the radio. That's why you don't see it on video rotation. That's why you don't hear it in shops and clubs,
0: because it's too damn good. There it is. I mean, I'll quote Pete Townsend, I think. It's an eminence front. It's a put-on. How is it that we listen to the lyrics of songs like that, and we don't catch on. How is it that when the Who showed up in NYC to mourn the loss of those two buildings, they they sang "Don't get fooled again," as we were all getting fooled again, as we were all queuing up to "Covidius Minimus." Nineteen years later, count the ways; uh, it never ends. And for me, you have to come to a reckoning. You have to come to a dead reckoning. You have to examine what it is. You have to identify it, and you have to freaking own it. And you have to be honest. I didn't want to admit that my musical heroes were nowhere near what classical musicians could pull off. As a matter of fact, I could have pulled any musician from any of the orchestras in the country, and they would have had many times the talent of almost any musician I lived to. So not only was I glorifying a thing, I was glorifying a thing that was harming society and pre-echoing the horrible events that have led to where we all live now. And I don't know many people that are happy with where we are now. And the kickoff for this, the out in the open, we're so big, you can't stop us, is 9-11. The second big kickoff is 311 2020, Covidius Minimus. And all of this has been a slow build through movies, through television, through news, and through music. And the thing about music that is the most insidious is it aims at minds that are not yet grown up. When I first got involved in music, I was, I don't know, sixth grade. That is not old enough to comprehend. That is not old enough to make sound decisions. And yet the programming has already crept in.
1: The whole spiritual aspect, Mark, what are some of the better examples you think that have been put out there? Like undeniable, do you think? Is there there a particular band or even a particular song that really would clue somebody off if they're listening to this and going, yeah, but what about this band? I don't think think they did it. But if they're at the, the top of their game, as I said before, the record label is putting it out there to do a particular job, or else it wouldn't be getting the push that these albums and and these bands, artists, whatever, get. Is there something that really uh, strikes a chord for you?
2: Well, there's one group that really did appear to be putting out empowering spiritual messages, and it certainly seemed to be benevolent. I've never identified any... uh, malevolent aspects to it and that would be earth wind and fire who put out a series of albums in the 1970s going into the 80s and the record sleeves were full of symbolism and when i first started researching all this stuff i made the mistake of identifying egyptian symbology they've got Ankh's on there and they've got uh, hieroglyphs and they've got the eye of horus the eye of providence and i was like oh here's another one putting out all this satanic imagery and then as i got a little more. Uh, mature and higher-minded, I realised, of course, that dark occultists and satanists don't have the monopoly on symbols. Signs and symbols are free to be used by any individuals or groups, and it's all down to the level of consciousness or will or intent that is attached to it. So it doesn't necessarily follow that if somebody is using an all-seeing eye on an album sleeve that they're out to control you or they're trying to announce that they're part of some freemasonic Illuminati Brotherhood. And so with Earth, Wind and Fire, they've got many of these uh, arcane symbols from different civilizations through the ages. And they do appear to have been using it for good, as far as I can make out. Uh, so got some questions about Maurice White of the group dying quite a few years ago at a relatively young age, uh, after having put out much material of this nature. He was the driving force behind that group. Uh, They are pretty much an isolated example. There aren't many other acts I can think of that weren't pushing agendas. What you tend to find is that in any major band or major solo artist's canon of work, you're going to find songs that are imparting important spiritual messages. And they appear to be doing it for the benefit of the listener. They appear to be offering truth on a plate to them but the problem is that the vast bulk of the rest of their work is going to be toxic and is going to be negative and is going to be pushing agendas and putting all you know pushing out all kinds of other uh, less favorable messages and you have to ask yourself why these songs uh, are out there and i feel that they're used to a very large extent to win over the general public to come to like this group this act to uh, get them to a point where you trust them and you like the messages that they're putting across so that when you let your guard down and you then research other output from this group, that's when you get hit with the messages that the controllers really want you to be getting through their work. So uh, there's so many examples of that. It's most groups out there. And every now and again, you get a song which uh, is full of sort of ambiguous spiritual messages Two of the best known would be two of the most played songs on FM radio around the world ever Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven and The Eagles Hotel California. I'm pretty sure we touched on these on the last show that we did. There's so many different ways of interpreting the messages being put across by those two songs. Some people think that there are empowering, benevolent messages in there, and others highlight the more satanic, sort of harmful stuff. And uh, you can look at it either way with both of those songs. But there are many other examples of records that appear to uh, be putting forward spiritual truths. And this raises the question of how it was that these music makers were clued in on this kind of information, this kind of knowledge. So, uh, you know, a whole different set of questions emerges at this point as to where these groups came from.
1: Well, the Eagles are interesting because they went through many iterations of change throughout the 1970s, as opposed to Led Zeppelin, who were always the same four people up until the death of the drummer, and then that was it. They were just like, we can't do this anymore after this.
2: Right, right, yeah. And uh, this is something you find with all major bands as well. Bands that reach the level of success of the Beatles, or the Rolling Stones, or the Who, or Led Zeppelin. At least one of the band members always seems to die at an untimely age you know there are very few if any exceptions to this think of the Beatles you know Stuart Sutcliffe and if you accept that the real Paul McCartney died in 1966 there's another one Rolling Stones Brian Jones dies at 27 you know the who Keith moon dies age 32 Led Zeppelin John Bonham uh, Queen you know Freddie Mercury Pink Floyd Sid Barrett uh, you know Friday's brains on acid so we're told and Died at the relatively young age of sixty after a pretty unhappy rest of life, and with all these groups, you know, there's at least one of the members that checks out early, so uh, that has to raise a few eyebrows,
1: surely. I don't see how it couldn't. <laughs> I mean, come on, like, all yeah. these people. But well, we're definitely talking about a time when people were doing things that were uh, <sighs> drugs or drugs and drinking and all that. It's just not good for you. But uh, the sixties, especially really kind of push this concept of excess and it's understandable that things might happen but at the same time you got to wonder if things aren't uh, like Brian Jones is a good example drowning in a pool right some of these things are just their circumstances where which, which really must make you question what the validity of the the mainstream explanation is
2: yeah you can go into the fine detail of all these deaths and uh, you find there's way more questions than answers And uh, it's always chalked up as the excessive rock and roll lifestyle when one of these musicians checks out early, you know. And often it's unspoken implications. So if you ask most people how Jimi Hendrix died, for example, they would probably say, oh, it was some sort of overdose, wasn't it? They won't recall the precise detail. They'll just remember hearing something about, oh, Jimi Hendrix was a druggie and, and so it was an overdose. Same thing with Janis Joplin. Whereas when you get into the research, it seems that Jimi Hendrix was murdered by his manager or on the uh, command of his manager. It was a couple of heavies from the Newcastle underworld that came down to do the job, by all accounts. And it was Michael Jeffrey, who was uh, Hendrix's manager and was also in the employ of the British Military Intelligence Services. Here we go again. He was an MI6 agent. And he didn't last too long after that event himself. Michael Jeffrey died in a plane crash 1974. So along uh, with him went all his memories and uh, potential accounts of what really went on uh, on that day in 1970.
1: Nothing suspicious there at all, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But this is the thing, you know, with so many artists, ask someone how Whitney Houston died and they'll say, oh, wasn't it some sort of overdose? You know, these these artists, they all uh, do drugs, don't they? And it's just uh, part of the rock and roll lifestyle. And uh, when you get into uh, studying many of these uh, cases, you realise that foul play is everywhere. And uh, it probably wasn't the case that they simply overdosed on drugs. This was used as the excuse to offer to the general public as an explanation to why they're no longer around. What usually happens is they fall foul of the industry machine in some way, and they have to be gotten rid of because they've become a liability, a loose cannon. And uh, this is the way they get away with it. You wouldn't get away with it if you wanted to kill a whole bunch of plumbers or uh, plasterers. You couldn't get away with it by saying, oh, yeah, they just all took overdoses. You know, they just did drugs at home and and that's how they all died. Uh, People would say, well, why are so many plasterers dying? What's going on? But nobody seems to ask, why are so many rock stars dying? They just chalk it up as, oh, well, it's the industry and it's the territory that goes with it.
1: Well, there's the easy excuse, of course, that uh, everybody who gets to that level wants to party. But uh, before we get to the top of the hour here, which we're we're just about there, I'm kind of curious about Elvis, since that's a a big topic for a lot of folks right now with with the current uh, movie that's out there. He didn't write any of his own music, so is there anything interesting about him we could throw out there for people to consider?
2: In the research that I put together for Musical Truth Volume 1, it became clear that Elvis was in the employ himself of various intelligence services. And he seemed to work with the police departments of various cities, and also with the Drug Enforcement Agency, of all things. And so when the world was told that he checked out on the 16th of August 1977, at the age of 42, uh, I'm not buying it, because it seems to me as if that was an engineered early exit from the scene And he was probably inducted into some sort of witness protection program through the CIA uh, and given a new identity and allowed to live out his final years outside of the
0: public spotlight. Then they'll make jokes on all the, you know, if someone spots Elvis all over the world, they start making jokes about that.
2: Yeah, well, there was the Kirsty McCall song in the late 70s. There's a guy who works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis, which uh, ties into this whole dynamic. A lot of people think Elvis Presley became Pastor Bob Joyce. And I actually think there's a lot of plausibility to that suggestion. If people want to look up Pastor Bob Joyce's videos on YouTube, you'll see uh, an elderly fella with white hair and a white beard. And his thing is that he's uh, a church pastor and he likes to sing Elvis Presley songs in church services. And he sounds just like him, moves just like him, And with a little bit of imagination, if you look at his facial features, could well be Elvis Presley in a state of advanced years. So I've not seen the Elvis movie yet, but friends who have, have said that it does hint at a sort of mind control subject handler type relationship between him and Colonel Tom Parker. This uh, very enigmatic Dutchman that came over to the United States. He wasn't a real colonel, he just went by that name. And he's portrayed in the movie by Tom Hanks. Uh, nothing creepy about that guy, of course.
0: <laughs> if Tom Hanks is doing it, you know what it is. He's done He's done everything. He's done the Pirates recently. He did the plane crash on the Hudson. If Tom Hanks is doing it, it's programming. And not only that, he donated his blood so they could make a Covidius Minimus vaccine. It just never ends. Well, there you go. I, I mean, I think we should, the truth of it is, is that entertainment is foul to the poor. And it does not matter whether you're looking at the evening news, whether you're looking at movies whether you're looking at indie movies, because indie movies that are supposedly independently made that make any prominence have been given the green light to be prominent. This is all controlled. People who speak on the air to hundreds of millions of minds, they are monitored. If they said the wrong things, they wouldn't be there. It is all about the programming at this point, and there's really no way around it. And that's where people have a tough time because the band they love, which I made the joke earlier, is clearly not involved in any of this. That's right. And so, the only key to emerging out of
2: this whole scenario with any sort of dignity intact, to go back to that extract from the book that I read earlier, is to get streetwise and get clued up on all this stuff. You know, comprehend the methods and the tactics that are used and resolve to never be fooled by it in the same way again. You might have to turn your back on entertainment entirely. I only really look at movies and TV shows now for research purposes. I've been looking at Stranger Things recently, and it's a great show, but I'm researching all the time. I'm spotting what's there beneath the surface, and I don't watch any other TV. I've had to let it all go, and people might find they have to do that if they don't want to fall into these traps and be mind-controlled in this way. You just have to find other things to do with your time and with your mind.
0: Or Feed the Beast. I mean, Jason and I, Jason, it was one of the earliest shows you and I did together where we had demonstrated that the gaming industrial complex was making many times what all movies, all music, what was it? It was basically all media put together had been trumped early in the 90s or midway through the 90s. Maybe it was late in the 90s. I don't remember. By the gaming. And so what does that tell you about gaming? Jason took the time, a a person he knew pointed out that, well, there was, zombies being killed in a game for children, which I don't know why children are allowed to play a game like that, That was pigs being slaughtered, was the soundtrack. So it comes down to, do you want to feed the beast? Do you want to give money to this thing that's been out of control for more than longer than I've been alive, creating so-called culture, programming minds, making fun of us because they knew 9-11 was going to happen decades before we did? Because they had already planned for Covidius Minimus. Do you want to take a hand in paying money into that? I would ask.
2: Well, what's incredible to me is how few of those that emerge from these industries seem to have any kind of a conscience that bothers them and keeps them awake at night and causes them to want to speak out. You get the odd one every now and again that seems to buck the trend. I think Prince was trying to put out some messages. I think Michael Jackson was trying to put out some messages. We know the way it, the way it ended for both of them. And through the whole convict narrative, you've had just one or two voices that have emerged, such as Van Morrison, Ian Brown of the Stone Roses, and not too many others. And it just amazes me that all these other musicians and the record company executives and those that control these things, Hollywood script writers and directors and uh, producers are able to live this way, just just be comfortable with, them, with themselves and be okay with uh, these genocidal agendas that are being pushed. It's just amazing that there's not more humanity among them. So what the hell has happened to them to break their souls in such a profound way? Uh, We can only imagine. But uh, what happened to humanity? What happened to
0: compassion? What happened to the human conscience? Where is it in these industries? There's a couple of things I would mention. Uh, You know, even the problem with Prince is, I think it was Rick and Morty pre-echoed the death of Prince uh, in the way it was going to happen in an early episode. There were a few things, the entirety of the album, Purple Rain, if you take that apart, uh, can be linked back to all kinds of things. When I first started to look at it, I realized the first time the public was indoctrinated with the words Purple Rain was an America song uh, some 40 some years before Prince. Um, And that whole verse is about the coming of Prince and the death of Prince. And when the man who wrote those, lyrics, 40 some, 47, maybe years before Prince. They asked, why did you say Purple Rain? He said, I can't tell you. So you wrote the words and you can't tell us, but that brings us up to another thing that Jason and I covered when we did our Tavistock episodes. Jason, you you may remember better than I do, but what we found... I had been reading some Daniel Estelin work and I launched off Estelin's work and some of the things he said, particularly with regard to world population, so that I would go my own way and try to find non-standard ways to determine whether these things were true. And what we found was that what they describe as some 30 some year old geeks write a script in Hollywood. Then it gets, it gets approved at some point and it's going to production. It's all ready to go. And the last step between we have a script and we're about to film a dude from Tavistock or who has been trained by Tavistock inserts the programming that he wants into the script right before it goes to shooting. And we found this supposedly across the boards. And since we don't sit in Hollywood and since we don't really take part in this, we have to take it on faith at some level that the research is logical and correct, but I'm not the only one who's done it. Estelin did it long before I did it. There are some others who did it long before I did it. And it gets to the point where the research had let me know that any major corporation, the people in that corporation have been trained by Tavistock in what they call corporate training centers and on and on it goes. And your question is a valid one. Where is humanity? Where is decency? Where is common sense? It's been programmed out of us temporarily here, I would submit.
2: Yeah. It rises to the surface in the likes of us, you know, regular folk uh, who aren't part of these secret society mystery schools and these uh, abominable uh, dark occult organisations. But when you're a part of the furniture within those institutions, it seems all that is just bred out of you, conditioned out of you in some way. Uh, I guess they uh, get traumatised and they get subject to satanic ritual abuse and trauma-based mind control to uh, drive all that stuff out of them, whereas it's still present in the rest of us. And that's why we have such a hard job comprehending how they can be so devoid of it.
0: So let me jump in here, Mark. We're at the top of the first hour for episode 432, which is a Hertz pun. For those of you that don't know, part of what we're talking about, music was taken over uh, there were three efforts that I have seen trying to get it moved from green tunings, Verde tunings, helpful tunings up to 440, where we pretty much exist today. Though many of us are going back to three, four, three, two, that is the story of even how we tune our instruments. So even when we are sitting alone trying to make decent, high-minded music in our living rooms, most of us have tuned to a frequency that's not very helpful by my estimation. Anyhow, Mark, please tell people where they can find you and get a hold of your stuff. So my main hub website is djmarkdevlin.com.
2: And there's links from there to my various podcasts and to my video channels and also to my books. My books are on Amazon, but if you want to get them direct from me, you can email me from that site. And then I've got my BitChute and Odyssey channel. I've had two YouTube channels removed. Who hasn't? So I don't bother with those jokers anymore.
0: There it is. And I should have mentioned at the opening, Mark's been on with us twice before, episode 179 and episode 213. But that brings hour one of episode 432, uh, basically about musical truth, or should we say entertainment truth? It is all-encompassing. It is all-enveloping. It has created what we call culture in most of the so-called civilized world, which I would estimate is a lot less civilized than places that may not have internet or TV, which are very few in this day and age. Those people are living in the creation and in the creation, there is no lie. Everything we've just talked about is a gigantic lie with an agenda, but there it is. Join us for hour two at pro triple seven radio that's C R R O W seven, seven, seven radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy and higher minded new era. Cheers.